0: Hi, this is Brian Pannish, the host of Get in the Game podcast for lawyers and people interested in the legal field. If you like what you hear, remember sharing is caring. Please subscribe and get into the game. Hello and welcome. Today we have uh, for the Get in the Game our special guest of Robert Simon. Robert Simon's a top trial lawyer, founding partner of the firm Simon and Simon. Was joined by two of his brothers in the practice of law. Robert graduated from the George Washington University Pepperdine Law School, and has been in the plaintiff per- personal injury field for many years. Welcome,
1: Robert. Thank you for having me, Mr. Panning.
0: We're, we're excited <laughs> to have you here today. What motivated you to become a plaintiff attorney?
1: Uh, well, my motivation came very young, and uh, I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And when I was about 12 years old, a big Irish family. That's where he came from. My grandmother one of 12. My dad's uncle was his age and he was good friends with him. So it's one of those deals. And my grandmother's one of the oldest, but he got hit by a drunk driver when he was in his early or late thirties, early forties and became paralyzed. He was a paraplegic. And I saw, you know, he was a press man for the Pittsburgh press. They literally pressed the newspapers, you know, and for that, he was the sole breadwinner for the family, and his life was, I mean, can you imagine what it did to that family? But I saw not only the toll that it took on him, but he had a lawyer that really fought for him, and he, they listened to the lawyer's advice, and, you know, they went all the way up through the trial and ended up resolving that case for, you know, what was a lot of money then and now, and they were able to structure a lot of that to take care of him and his family and his medical care, so he did have a quality life, you know, and of course you can't ever anticipate what complications you're going to have with that type of injury. And, you know, I got to see that and just, I was inspired from that day. That's why I got a plaintiff law. And Brian Panish gave me a very good book one time when I was a young lawyer and I was very excited to meet Brian Panish, of course. It was called, You Can't Teach Hungry by John Morgan. And one of the first lines in that book says something to the effect of, well, let me tell you a little something about you. If you're reading this book, one, you're probably from the Midwest. Two, you didn't grow up with a lot. Three, you probably have some Irish in you, something to that effect. And I was like, "Oh my God, it really yeah, resonates." That. Yeah. So.
0: Well, your firm, although it's called the Simon Law Group, I called it Simon and Simon. They used to be called that, but you have family members working there, not only your brothers but others. Tell us about that. What is that like to work? <laughs> my I, all my brothers are lawyers. I don't think we could work in the same firm. Well. Uh, but my, they. But isn't it true that your brothers are in different offices yeah, than you?
1: And my parents, and I'll tell you why. So. Uh, growing up, my dad was a truck driver and we had, uh, five kids. There are five kids, my two brothers, two sisters, we had one bathroom. So, you know, we really had to come together, you know? Um, but my, my goal dream was always to work with my family. So I actually started with my youngest brother before he was a lawyer and we grew. And, um, so it's my little brother, Brandon, my twin brother who manages and runs the practice, Brad Simon, we're all lawyers. And then after a while we got so busy, we hired my mom, my mom, my mom and dad got a divorce, like probably 10 years ago. Now I handled the divorce for them. Very amical, uh, but they're still friends. So we moved my out to work for us. And then my dad was the last one there. He's like, Hey, I want to come. Right. My dad's hilarious. So he's our in-house trucking experts. So my dad works for me. Now my dad's new wife, Mary works with the Simon. That's why we're not Simon. Simon well, what happened anymore. to the sisters? Well, listen, it's, we're, we're getting there. So the sisters finally this year, they, I convinced them, they've left their jobs. They're, they're, they're brilliant by, literally graduated number one in their classes and they uh, they're going to start working at our firm. And so my mom, my dad, my dad's new wife, my dad's wife's daughter. (laughs) That's why we're the Simon Law Group now, Brian, not Simon and Simon.
0: Well, tell us about the firm, what kind of practice areas you're in, offices, how many lawyers and where you came from.
1: (laughs) So I started out at a not too far from where we're recording now in a single office renting from Mike Pughes. And I, there's so
0: a legendary plaintiff legendary. personal injury lawyer in California one heck of a trial lawyer. Yeah. That's some huge
1: verdicts. Huge. And I, you know, I, I rented a single, I'll never forget a single office for $1,750 a month. And I leased a copy or a big copier scanner to scan the mail and my little brother. So the three of three of us, cause that thing was essentially a person and that's where we started ended up having some success and then leased an office building got my other brother brother to come in in Century City and this is where we really started to take off and I I came to the conclusion that we needed in order to gain experience and what's do what's right for our client that we had to start to collaborate with other lawyers and that's when I first met you know my idols in the profession like like Brian Panish we did a case together a trial and we ended up getting a very big result on it um, very big and it that helped fund my ability to hire other lawyers, other support staff and grow our firm and and our network. So now I have 24 lawyers that work with us. I have about 50 employees total. We have four offices about to be five. So we have one in Hermosa beach, Santa Ana, um, Canoga park. Uh, we're in in a building in Torrance. And we have an office, a satellite, two satellites with just the minimal people in there in San Diego and in San Jose. So, and that wasn't, so my 10 year anniversary for that firm is next year, 2020.
0: Today is my 14 year anniversary of starting this firm. Wow. Today. Today is the day. Wow. And we'll, we'll talk about that. Starting a law uh, firm, you know, you never run a business. You've been in you know. school most of your life. Obviously you've had jobs, you have work experience, but what was it like to start running your own business and not only have to practice law, but have to understand the business of yeah.
1: law? And I think that's the big, I mean, that's the biggest struggle people don't realize is if you're starting your firm, more than 50% of your day and time is running the business. So my advice, and you have to get somebody else that you trust to be partners with you that can run those activities for you. And thankfully I had a clone. I have a twin brother, you know, Brad, and he loves doing those things. And he, you know, manages. he really manages the firm, all the properties, um, the employees and, um, the business side of things. And, you know, it, it's very difficult to do it and be a trial lawyer at the same time. Cause when you're in trial, you disappear for weeks, you know?
0: Well, let's talk about your practice. What kind of cases do you do? How do you do? Um, do you put more than one lawyer on a case? Let's talk
1: about that. So we do everything in teams at my firm. Um, it's kind of, we have litigation teams that has a supervising manager and then they have two or three associates under them and then a paralegal, a law clerk, or two, and then some more support staff. And I have about four or five of those teams. They each handle about 70 cases in litigation. Um, and I try to devote, so we have the, the litigation teams, we have a trial lawyer team that does a lot of the expert depositions and try the cases. And then we have a law and motion uh, department. And, and I think that's synergy because everybody likes to come together. We have a big collaboration with all of our cases, a lot of camaraderie. When we try cases, much like you guys do, and I learned it from you, is you really have to do it as a team. You have the two lawyers that are at the table trying the case, you have likely another lawyer in the courtroom helping with graphics, seeing things that you don't see with the jury. And then you have two or three people back at the mothership doing real-time motion writing. You know, And, and that's a quality. I think if you want to win in today's age with what we're going up against, because um, as I heard somebody famous once say, we don't get paid per hour; we get paid per halves, right, Brian? Exactly. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit more
0: about that. So you have a team, you have your team leader or your captain, and you have other people on the team. Does the team handle their own lawn motion and expert work, or is it another team that kind of comes in to depose the experts, to file motions, to oppose motions?
1: Correct. So the the each team has their option to either do it within most of the time we have our law and motion department write all the motions limited just so we have consistency and same thing with summary judgments that has to go to the law and motion department um, when it comes to setting up who's taking what depositions that's usually handled by my my brother decides who has the base capa- best capabilities to do that but for the most part about 45 days before trial right around expert designations it's i run our trial team there's about six of us on there we start to get those cases on our radar start to talk about which trial lawyers would be best to try that case. And sometimes it's with one of the lawyers on that team, then one of the trial lawyers, sometimes two of the designated trial lawyers, they start doing the expert depositions, start making sure all the exhibits are taken together. So by the time a case goes from inception to verdict, you've probably had seven or eight lawyers touch your file and work on it at our firm.
0: When you're choosing the lawyers for the trial, what what's important to you?
1: So when choosing lawyers for a trial, what's important is, I always think there has to at least one of those lawyers has to be um, the organization type lawyer where they're the one that knows, I mean, all the logistics of trial, like talking to the experts, making sure that all the, the paperwork's in order, making sure that the motion's limiting and just knowing every fact of the case. And that we have the benefit. I've recruited some very good trial lawyers that are very good at doing trials and doing that aspect as well. So there has to be someone like that that is just great at logistics on that trial. And then the other trial lawyer... Um, and we split duties 100% down the middle with, with with trial. Usually somebody's picking a jury, another person's opening, another person's closing, another person's doing rebuttal. Because I like to teach and be able to have everybody get a piece of, of what the product that they're putting into it. But there are people that have better strengths on better cases. If it's more technical, you need more technical people there to try the case. Um, because, you know, like a product case, it's very, very nuanced. And we take maybe 5% of our cases are product cases because they're very, time, um, and cost, you know, let's talk about that. How
0: would you say just generally the cases break down? What kind of cases are
1: you having? Okay. So I've kind of got the niche of being known as like the spine surgery expert. And so 80% of our cases, I'd say are spine injuries. And these aren't the paralyzed type cases. These are people having fusion surgeries or chronic pain, um, disectomies, these types of things. So 80% of what we do is that. And I think that's our bread and butter and I love it. Maybe 10%, 5%, 10% are product cases. Again, we have to be very selective with those just because, I mean, for anybody listening, they're very expensive. And the other side on those those types of cases, they fight very hard. And it does take a lot of team effort to win those cases. Um, and the other 10% probably is just miscellaneous things. So we've handled a couple of sex abuse cases. Um, but Slip all and fall cases. Falls. We do a lot of premises cases, which I like.
0: Premises yeah. cases spine cases, what is the key in your mind to preparing the case and getting a good verdict for your client?
1: I think the key is, first of all, understanding the science of it because um, most of the time people concentrate on the wrong things with a spine injury case. They fall into the defense trap of, well, it's degeneration, right? It's These people have degeneration. That's why they're having surgery. But if you look at the actual Jury instructions, it's aggravation, pre-existing condition, because everybody has degeneration, right? But you have to know how to ask the questions to the defense experts. many times, they'll give it up to you. Just look at like the jury instructions wherever you're trying your case and look at the causation instruction. In California, it says, KC 430, the last part of substantial factor says, the harm would not have occurred without the defendant's wrongful conduct. Well, just ask the defense expert. Can you say with a reasonable degree of medical probability, this person would have ever needed spine surgery if this crash never happened? They'll never answer that question. Well, some real paid advocates will, but most of the time they won't. So I think the preparation that is key for the spine um, cases is the expert depositions, because you can win them 100% at that time, and then it becomes a chronic pain case.
0: What about the cases where the defense is taking the position that the impact forces could not have caused the injury? It's common, my experience, is that that's a big defense. They might call it a missed Mm -hmm. minimal impact, soft tissue, low impact, whatever you want to call it. How do you deal with
1: those issues? So I've done a lot of those cases, the low impact spine surgery cases, the biggest spine surgery verdict I ever had was $17 million on an impact you couldn't even see. And the way that I tried that case with Grace and Goody in my office was we made it the issue from the very beginning during jury selection. Who here thinks that if the car can't be hurt, the person can't be hurt. And we polarize the cases they're going to concentrate on just, well, how could this possibly happen? Look at the damage on the car. And we said, we're going to prove it to you with science by looking at when the pain started, where in the body it went, how it matched up with the herniations. And either you think that this man, and it's polarizing the case. Either you think this, this man is a liar, cheating a fraud. And if you think he is, give given zero, but if not, they deserve full compensation. So, The biggest misconception I think some people do is they over-designate experts. And you never want to buy a mechanical expert in one of your cases like that in a spine surgery case because it's so complicated and the defense tries to make up issues like stepping off a curb or that type of impact. But I think what it boils down to is on those light impact cases, you need to have a stellar plaintiff in order to win. Because most jurors, you can hold up a picture of a photo and they'll be like, well, how can somebody get hurt by that? But if you have a very credible plaintiff, and the science and the medicine matches up, that's how you win those cases.
0: but is really the damage really that causatively related to the injury? No, and why, I think that's why can't you why can't you just keep the pictures
1: out? Well, of evidence. We try, and some judges and actually I got a motion um actually is one uh, Raul in your office kept out property damage photos. They had a trial in Pasadena. This was probably maybe five or six years ago. And I've used that as a model to, and some judges do allow it because at the end of the day, unless their expert says that the force is not enough to cause the injury, then why are we even talking about the photos? Exactly. Yeah. And
0: what what is a juror, isn't that beyond the common yep. knowledge of a juror? I mean, how does a juror know how many forces or how much force it takes to herniate a disc in the back?
1: I know. And that's, I, I think that's the issue is a lot of judges, especially new judges or ones that don't do a lot of trials are just afraid to exclude evidence. And, um, you know, 80% of our judges are great. Well, you know, just
0: like everybody there's good and bad in life, good lawyers, bad lawyers, I assume judges, most of them are good. Maybe there's a few bad ones out there, but let's talk about another issue that I'm sure you deal with in spying cases. It's a case where your client, they argue all the treatment was directed by the lawyer, and your client had a surgery on a lien, and the doctor has a financial interest in the
1: case. So here's my advice on that. First of all, your treating surgeon should never be your retained expert. You should have two. You should your treater should be Because for the exact same reason. So if you have a retained expert who didn't do the surgery, doesn't not getting paid whether or not the surgery was done. They have no skin in the game. They're just here to tell you from a third-party perspective what was done and why. Um, you have the treating surgeon up there. Most of the time, they're just getting cross-examined on exactly what you said. Attorney referrals. you you only get paid if you win. That's why you're cutting. Blah blah blah. But here's what I've noticed: is whenever you list it in California, if you list non-retained experts, you can still get their opinion testimony. So you can essentially double dip on causation, cost of treatment, whatever. But a lot of times the defense will make the mistake of listing as non-retained all the treaters. They do it all the time. Well, that's a blessing because under CCP in California, 2025 and 2034, you can then take the videotape deposition for purposes of trial of the non-retained expert. So guess what? When you take the deposition of the treater, guess what the defense does? They don't send their trial lawyer that understands it. They send the first or second year associate. And you're up there doing the direct without a cross examination of this treater. They won't know how to ask the questions. Then you designate the video to be played at trial and there you go. How do you deal
0: with the liens So I mean it's a big deal. I see it often. Yep. How do you deal with
1: that? So first of all, with liens, what I try to do on the meds, the medical bills, is get a stipulation as the reasonable cost um, by taking a discount off of it. So you're it's not worth the fight, you know. You'll- so it's
0: out of the case. You say they've stipulated the past medicals are a hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. There's no issue to bring up the lien since they say it's reasonable.
1: Correct. So then why are we talking about it? So I usually will dangle that, and so. Say you have $250,000 in medical bills. Say, okay, I write a, an email to the defense. We're willing to stipulate that 150000 is reasonable. You can argue causation all you want. We'll just say that's the reasonable cost. Please share this with your, your insured and their private counsel so they know that we're trying to save them $100,000 on a potential judgment and exposure. Do
0: they um, usually agree to it.
1: They'll negotiate, and sometimes 50% of the time they'll agree. Um, the other time is, you know, and judges with the new case law that's out there in California, they'll exclude attorney referrals or liens as, as to relevance against good judges. But I, I always take my worst fact and make it my best fact. So when I'm, if you do a mini opening, you bring these things out and you start asking a jury, you know, who here has ever heard of a lien, like a mechanics lien, somebody has and say, well, do you think that, um, it's okay for, for doctors instead of sending patients to collections to just put a lien on their case? to get paid that way. So the defendant has to pay that way. Does anybody have a problem with that? So you flip it as to, well, these doctors are doing something good, right? They're doing, they're giving good quality care to somebody, not saying in the collections, like a hospital would do sometimes. And they're the best surgeon in the community. And the same thing with attorney referred care. Most of the time people get better after these treatments. So I own it and say, yeah, yeah. I mean, our, my client says, well, God bless. Thank God, Mr. Simon got me that surgeon because now I'm feeling better, right?
0: You know, I heard, the, uh my good friend, Keith Midnick say the way he handles it is he tells the jurors up front, are y'all concerned about the people that provide the medical treatment, getting the money and not the client. And of course people say, sure. He says, well, we've taken care of that for you and we specified out exactly how much the doctor gets. Not only have we done that, there's a contract that says Uh, the doctor gets directly paid from the proceeds. I don't know if you tried it, but it sounds pretty good to me.
1: I like that. I mean,
0: All right, so tell me about a case that changed your life and how it did, if there's one or more.
1: I mean, there's there's several, because I take every case personally, and I, I think about every trial that I've done, I try to find that hook that makes it personal for me so that it, it gets me more invested. And, and there was this one, and, um, it, you know, it just seemed like your run run-of-the-mill car crash. A guy had a neck surgery. He actually had two. Um, and then it seems like, if you look it on paper, it's like, you guys had a couple fusions, whatever. But I went to his house. I met with him, and I just started to learn his story. And then I found out that he and his wife had struggled with fertility issues, and they had gone through the adoption process, and they adopted this beautiful boy. And the story became... I'm getting emotional talking about it because my wife and I went through all that too. And we adopted, and I, I knew exactly what their story was. And I knew what the hook was. See, I'm starting to cry. This is bad, but it was learning that story and I could tell it because I knew it. Um, and they actually, we had not yet adopted at that point. We we're starting stages. And then that client helped my wife and I, um, this was a federal trial out in Riverside. And I'll never forget the day that we got the verdict. We found out we weren't pregnant, so it—it was—I mean, the client called me from the courthouse. We got a big verdict; they gave—he gave me his adoption lawyer that day, and that's how we found our daughter. Yeah, really changed my life.
0: That really is incredible, and you know, dealing with the clients—they're real people and they have real lives, and and people kind of lose sight of that when they say, "Oh." Well, that guy got a big verdict. Well, what has he been through? What have they suffered?
1: And that's what I think the mistake that people make is they don't get invested or learn their actual story or how the injury is affecting them. They just think, well, this is what it's worth because this is this type of injury. or surgery. It's not. That's not the story. If, if you practice that way, you're not going to have success.
0: How, how do you think the landscape is changing for plaintiff lawyers
1: in the legal field? I think that plain lawyers have to get more sophisticated with technology because that is all that the, our potential jurors are doing. They have a much shorter attention span, as we all do. It has to, Information has to be fast. It has to be quick. And I think you have to get as many data points as you can to be ahead of the curve. Um, we started recently using um, jury analyst, and the data points are amazing just to be able to see what personality traits potential good jurors could be for you. And I mean, I'm big into just getting as much information as you can because, again, we have to win and do the best service we can for our clients. So why not get all that information? There's so much out there on every juror on social media, on every expert on social media, on Google. I mean, I spend at night, I'm just Googling the expert's name and, in parentheses, fraud. I mean, might strike gold. You don't know.
0: It's amazing Um, what you can find on the internet about witnesses and jurors and experts. What about juror questionnaires?
1: So... Unfortunately, a lot of courtrooms that have one- or two-week trials, the judges aren't even going to allow a questionnaire, and they should.
0: Even though the California law says <laughs> if you request it, it should be given. And, you are and you're I'm- still running into judges who are saying, I bet they say, well, it takes much longer. That's my experience. Lawyers ask the same questions. Yep. They don't read through them like they should. And this is just a week trial. We don't need it. Yep. And how do you respond to that?
1: I mean, yes, your honor. Yes, her honor. Whatever you got to say. It's just, you got to go with the roll with the punches. You try as hard as you can, but be nice about it. At the end of the day, you're, you but don't want to make qualms with that judge but on That just one. doesn't
0: help the plaintiff lawyer. No? The defense lawyers, if they're trying to do the best job for their client, they would want all the data also to let them make an informed decision. Yeah, and I think
1: the best thing to do is try to get as many stipulations as you can with the other side. If you stipulate to a questionnaire, they're going to allow you to use it because you stipulated it to it.
0: So um, not, always, not always. But you yeah. you would hope.
1: I mean I went I tried a case earlier or about six months ago in federal court in Arizona and you actually get the jury questionnaires filled out like a week ahead of time. Imagine that.
0: Yeah, uh, I couldn't even imagine
1: oh, that. Man. But of course it is
0: Arizona. <laughs> so okay, I got one more question. We're winding down. We'll have to get you back again. But what would you say to someone that wants to be a trial lawyer? What are the important things in his do let's say this is either someone in law school uh-huh or a young lawyer that's past the bar, they're trying to figure out what they want to do, they really want to try cases, how would you recommend they go about preparing for that?
1: So, and i we do a lot of at our firm with young lawyers, and I've had my lawyers trying cases right out the get-go, but they never do it alone. And I think you could be a solo practitioner, but you never, ever have to be alone. I think the biggest thing you can be doing is getting real experience if you're in law school by clerking at firms. You could do it for free if you have to. And I took way less working at a firm because I, I knew what I wanted to do to be a traveler to be able to learn. And you have to collaborate with the people that are best in the field. Remember, you're, you have an absolute ethical duty to your client. And if you have the opportunity to bring in like the Brian Panches of the world to try a case with you, you do it because you can learn, you get a better result for your client. And that's what I did to build my practice and to learn. And I still plagiarize all of Brian Panish's Mm -hmm. slides. I still have to pay him a royalty. (laughs) I'm still (laughs) waiting for the check, but
0: really, isn't that what you're doing also with your young lawyers? When you're doing the team of lawyers, even if it's the third person that's just sitting there, they might just be helping the graphics or keeping track of the exhibits, but through osmosis, if they're paying attention, they've got to learn, right?
1: Yeah, and I, you have to. I mean, it's the, the practice of law. It's the practice of trial work. And you have to see it and do it repetitively and be in it. And there's no way to really understand what trial is like. And look, people think it's sexy and glamorous. It's not. Like, it's, it's fun when you're in the moment in trial, but they don't understand. We're sleeping a few hours a night. We're wait, working late. are cramming for finals every night. Every night. And it, it does, it takes a toll on on your
0: health, your your sleep and your eating, but it's, as you get more comfortable, you can kind of maintain
1: some balance in your life. Right. The first few trials I did was by myself and it was miserable trying to run my practice by myself, my little brother. And it was, I mean, I think I got an ulcer that year and that's when I was like, guys, I got to learn. And I think That's my practice took off when I said, you know, I got to associate other people and learn how to do it. But I think if you're able to collaborate with other people and bounce ideas off each other in real time and do that, that's a big thing. I think that's, if you're in a firm like we are here or you can walk down the hall or get in the office and just bounce an idea off somebody, it's amazing what you can. And I learn new stuff every day, you know.
0: That's why I call it the practice a lot. Thank you so much. We're out of time. It was great to have you and looking forward to having you back. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate it. Hi, this is Brian Panish. Remember, sharing is caring. If you like what you hear, please subscribe. Get into the game.